while our worship team is sitting down, show your appreciation to them. What a great job leading us this morning. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And uh, in a moment, I'm going to read from verses 19, just down through verse 23. If you are here for the first time with us, my name is Colby. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Pillar Church. Uh, it's an exciting opportunity for us to gather this morning and worship. I hope that you uh, have felt welcome, and we look forward to connecting with you. Uh, for those that um, are part of our church, it's just a joy to be able to worship this Sunday morning with you. And uh, as we prepare to hear from God's word, let's give all of our attention to him. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them and its blessings. As we pray and ask God to add his blessing to the word. We want to be mindful this morning. We've had the opportunity to send one of our members uh, yesterday, Noah Clifton, uh, off to the Middle East for the next five months, uh, where he'll be working with a, a team of gospel workers there to spread the gospel in challenging and difficult uh, places and circumstances. And so uh, as we gather for worship this morning, let's continue to remember him uh, today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us. Lord, right now we pray for Noah, as he uh, arrives in his destination, Lord, that uh, you would meet him there, Lord, and you would speak to him, and you would confirm, Lord, just what you've called him to do over these next many months, Lord. We pray for uh, just strength in his life as he fulfills the, uh, the work that you've sent him there to do, and Lord, we pray that you would use him. God, we pray uh, for today, Lord, as we look at your word, Lord, that you would grant us vision to see uh, the calling that you have placed on our lives and to receive it with uh, a sense of seriousness and joy as we seek to be faithful to who you have called us to be in your mission and lord we pray for that in jesus name amen um, you know, last week as we were getting ready for the week of prayer and then throughout this week, uh, we spent time reminding you to pray for a number of things. But one of the things that I ask you to pray for is, God, grant us faith to pursue fruitful evangelism. Grant us faith to pursue fruitful evangelism, that, that God would see fit to use our church to bring other people to genuine faith in Christ regularly through the lives of individuals who have embraced the calling to proclaim the message of Christ and to embody it in the midst of the, the relationships that God has placed us in. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, where we have just read, Paul helps us see what it looks like to have the gospel as the supreme purpose of our lives. After explaining what life looks like since he came to know Jesus, he sums it up in 1 Corinthians 9, 23, saying, I do everything for the sake 
of the gospel. That's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? It's searching. One of the things that is evident in this passage is that Paul is a man with a clear mission. He knows what his life is about. The mission explains everything else that he is doing, and it overrules and controls other rival motivations in order to shape him toward one key goal in life, making Jesus known. Paul makes the statement to help the Corinthian believers, though, understand what he has already done in their midst and make sense of the sort of decisions that he has been making. Why did Paul do things the way he did when he lived in Corinth? Why does he do it that way now? The answer is he has a filter. Does this make me more effective for the gospel or not? That's what Paul is deciding. So I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. What explanation sums up your mission in the most recent season of your life? What explanation sums up your mission in the most recent season of life? And is it worth the sacrifices that you have made of other things to pursue it? If 2021 in your life got a summary statement, what would it be? We fill in the blank, something like this. Paul said, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, but somewhere there, every one of us has an answer to that question. I do it all for the sake of blank. If you got honest with looking back on the most recent season of your life, what is that controlling purpose that everything else is filtered through? And would be a, a reasonable explanation if people looked at your life. This person does it all for the sake of blank. I mean, there's some easy ones we could talk about that I think are common ways that we define our lives. I do it all for the sake of career advancement. That might explain so many of the major decisions that you've made. I do it all for the sake of financial security. Decisions about what you do, how you spend your time, generosity, what you invest in. I do it all for the sake of financial security. You could, maybe, maybe you would say this, I do it all for the sake of my kids being safe or prospering. Now, many of these are good things, aren't they? But see, really what Paul's asking us to do is ask the question, what's the ultimate thing? Safe for what? I do it all for the sake of my friend's approval, for that word of affirmation, for my parents' approval, for my social group's approval, my culture's approval. Or maybe I do it all for the sake of my own sense of control, my ability to manage things for the future. If someone were trying to get a grip on describing the compelling mission of your life and purpose, how would they describe it after watching you over the past season of your life? And how would you describe it if you were really honest? You see, my goal for as many of us as I can bring along on this journey is that it would be more and more clear when someone looks at our lives it would be more and more clear when someone looks at our lives that we would be described as people who do everything for the sake of the gospel. 
And as we do that, that we would become genuinely fruitful in other people discovering Jesus through our life and witness. Because we do everything for the sake of the gospel, Jesus is the one who our life's light shines the spotlight on. And if we're going to become fruitful in evangelism, in turning other people to find faith in Jesus, we will discover with Paul in this passage that we're going to have to embrace at least these three Christ-imitating patterns that he points us to. If we are going to be a gospel-shaped people, a mission-shaped people, Paul shows us what that looks like as it matures, as we move from that being an aspiration to learning what it looks like to be fruitful. And he gives us some indicators how he thought about his life so we can begin to shape our lives with the same ideas. Christ-imitating patterns. They will make us more like Christ and more fruitful in evangelism at the same time because Jesus intends for us to increasingly possess what we are compelling others to receive. In fact, he wants us to be the most sincere witnesses that we can be in his kingdom as we are appropriating the blessings of walking with him, the joys and the purpose and clarity of walking with him so that when we commend him to others, we do it from the most sincere place of integrity. And then we can do it with passion and conviction. Well, let's see what these patterns are that Paul points us to. Paul is an experienced Christian who's been working this out and here in in first Corinthians in this letter he is helping these believers understand what he had done when he was among them sharing the gospel and the first so I'm going to share three patterns with you the first one is this He, he shows them the pattern of mature freedom he shows them the pattern of mature freedom we see this in verse 19 let's review it again for though I am free from all I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them Fruitful evangelism requires Christ-imitating freedom. Christ-imitating freedom. For most of us here, if we are going to fulfill God's purpose for us, we are going to have to get free from some things that have us significantly enslaved so that we can bind ourselves to his compelling mission. Let me show you what I mean in the text this pattern of freedom and and what it looks like in maturity. What Paul says here in verse 19 is, Paul says that although Paul is free from all, he makes himself a servant of all so that he might win them to Christ. The statement itself is a bit of a paradox, right? Between freedom and being bound to something and being a servant to someone The statement is a paradox, and and, and it has real power to consider just in itself. Listen to how he says it. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Let's keep digging into that. Because it's not just a tangent that Paul is on. It's his entire explanation to the Corinthian believers of the way he is making decisions about his own life as he goes about pursuing his purpose. Is that although he's perfectly free to do a lot of things and he's free from all, and and we'll look at what that all might be, he he has chosen with his freedom to make himself a servant in a very specific way. He's bound himself to something. I, notice, I want you to notice it's not a tangent. If you have your Bibles open still to the same place, if you back up to verse 15, we started in 19. In verse 15, he says, 
But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Well, he's talking to these Corinthian believers about the way that he chose not to pursue gathering to himself some of the things that he could have, that were allowable to him, that were perfectly morally reasonable for him to care about. He chose to forsake those things because he wanted to dwell in their midst in a particular way for effectiveness in the gospel that they might see Christ. Back up, he doesn't just say it there, he says it in verse 13. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. What he means is, rather than put any obstacles in the way of you coming to know the gospel of Christ, we have set aside significant things that we would have the right to claim for ourselves so that you don't have any chance of having an obstacle or misunderstand what we are all about, which is calling people to single-hearted devotion to the only person who deserves it, and that's Jesus Christ. He's free from a whole lot of things so he can be about just one. Now he gives some particulars, actually, at the beginning of the chapter. If you go, keep going back. He's on mission, and he mentions not bringing, you know, not establishing a family, which is obviously like the way he says it. He had sort of a desire that that could have been. He had made a choice in this point in his life that for him, he, that to pursue gospel faithfulness that he, in his mission, that he would forsake what he could certainly have claimed. He, he forsakes being able to have the support of other churches financially providing for him while he's going about his mission so that he can come, come work among the people and receive his wages with them and in weakness struggle with them and, and, and experience all those things so that they're in a place where there are no Christians and they might think he's just there to sell religious goods and become wealthy on the backs of that. He is making sure that there's no question or obstacle to hearing that Christ is supreme. I mean, think of how significant this is his argument. He says, these are perfectly good and normal things to pursue or even expect or provide for one another. But at the same time, for you and for your sake, I thought through my life that I want to make sure there's no obstacles through me for them hearing the gospel as I go about this work. Isn't that powerful? And I would say, in immaturity, most of us aren't free to do that. <laughs> To live something out like that because immediately the things we think we deserve, the things we want, they actually enslave us from a higher purpose and passion that, that we really want to pursue. And so we might aspire, let's just think about this in terms of church life, we might aspire to fruitful evangelism for this to be a place that God uses while at the same time be bound to things that will keep us from not putting obstacles in other people's way. You see, here's, here's what all this means. In our society, we misunderstand maturity and freedom. We get distracted by what we do on the outside, and we ignore what is happening on the inside. Because of this, our culture believes that unrestrained outward actions are a sign of inward personal freedom and maturity. That the free person who is the person who just does whatever they feel like doing on the outside. And that, that, mature, that real freedom is just being totally unrestrained at all times. <laughs> That's what freedom looks like. 
Well, anyone who has ever tried to accomplish something significant or valuable knows that this is false. In order to accomplish any important mission, you have to be free from more desires than you're bound to. In order to accomplish any important mission, you have to be free from more desires than you're bound to. Or else you'll never have single-minded clarity. So, so the first thing for us to really be free is to get unbound from the things that, that will really stop us from pursuing what is most valuable. In fact, for this reason, Paul gives an example in verse 24 through 26. The sort of freedom Paul is concerned with is this sort of freedom that an elite athlete experiences in training, right? He talks about the runner who competes in the race, disciplines himself. That means that that, that, that person, in order to receive and accomplish and be victorious, that they will say no to so many things. To be able to be free in the ways they most need to be free. You hear that? We have to, in order to be free in the ways we really need to be free, we have to learn to say no to more things than we say yes to. Free from laziness, for the, Paul's example here for the runner. Free from distraction. Free from contrary and undermining purposes and desires. Able to say no to certain things because the things they are pursuing, the real goal they're after they know is more satisfying. Are you, and this is the question we have to ask, are you able to enjoy this sort of freedom spiritually? Like, is that, is that the reality of your inward life, that there's a freedom to pursue what you know is best because you're not so bound to all of the things that are less? Are you captivated with Christ in a way that empowers you to say no to other things that will ultimately leave you unsatisfied so you can pursue the real joy of knowing Him, of communing with Him, of living a life worthy of His calling? The ability to say no to lesser desires for the pursuit of a greater goal is what Paul calls freedom and maturity. And it is the foundational mindset necessary for us to become fruitful in the mission of Christ. When we are unable to deny ourselves of preferences so that we can pursue our purpose in Christ, then we are not really free. We've given too great a power to something else, and it can always call your attention away from its rivals. So the reason Paul is so concerned about our inward freedom and focus on Christ is that that inward freedom is required for outward focus of love. You see, the inward freedom from all of the things that would keep us from fulfilling our purpose is actually required if we're going to have a life with an outward focus of love. We have to gain that kind of freedom. Are you freed up for love? Or is there a long list of deal breakers that you present to God before you will join him in his mission of reaching people, of loving people, of being with them? Now, you all remember the mental picture of the monkey with its hand in the trap? I think we have a screen. There it is. Yeah, um, you know, this is, this is a mental picture of a, of a monkey trap where it's got its grip on something on the inside that it wants, an apple. It will not let go to gain its freedom. Pulling at it, believing that it can both hold on and tear away, right? This is the, this is the picture. Well, imagine the room here is circled with that sort of contraption all over the place, and inside is a whole variety of temptations, a whole variety of commitments and preferences and desires, and in the middle of it 
in the middle is the, the fruit of a, a life on mission with Christ. You know, what I'm holding up as worthy is, is that we would realize how often we have our, our grip around so many other things while we wonder why we don't feel free to really engage in the mission that Christ has called us to. Why we don't seem to be able to be fruitful while we're chained And the call is that we would realize that so many of those things in our hand, we've convinced that we need ourselves that we need, or our preferences for them are so strong that we are not free to enter all sorts of lives and relationships with a with a sense of freedom to really be able to love people where they're at. We've got all kinds of reasons. We're foolish if we think we will not have to let go of the things that are in the trap if we're going to pursue the mission of Christ's calling for us. Because Listen, maturity means we are less entangled with self-interest and more able to love others practically and they're therefore useful in the mission of the gospel of Christ. That leads to our second point. When we do everything for the sake of the gospel, the second thing we discover is the pattern of personal presence. The pattern of personal presence. So this is the second thing we really see here in verses 20 through 22. Fruitful evangelism. It not only requires freedom and mature freedom, it requires Christ-imitating relationships where we speak as people who are near to others' lives. If we are going to recover a fruitfulness in helping other people to discover Jesus, we're going to have to speak from inside their lives rather than outside them. Almost almost every week, uh, my girls tell me that I should be more like Bobby Gomez. Yeah. Uh, many of you, some of you know Bobby Gomez. Uh, he, uh, if, you, if you don't know, Bobby was one of our elders until last summer when he abandoned us to keep his job in the Coast Guard and moved to North Carolina. <laughs> Where he now serves as an elder at Pillar Topsail, to be fair. So we praise God for that. Now, if you know Bobby, you know, I mean, you might be thinking, why, why do the Garmin girls want... Pastor Colby, to be like Bobby Gomez. Well, he has four daughters. Keep that in mind. I've got four daughters. And uh, they've, you know, they've observed him. Now, if you know Bobby, you know that he's a natural athlete, that he's smart, that he's capable, that if you are going to ever win a trivia night anywhere, he's the best person to have on your team. I've only won trivia nights with him. He's intelligent. He's strong. He's an accomplished military officer who would have many reasons to be puffed up with his own sense of personal importance. But he isn't. Now that isn't really why the girls bring him up, though. All those reasons would be plenty of good reasons to do. They bring him up because, as they have reminded me many times, every Sunday morning Bobby helps do the hair of all four of the Gomez girls before church. It usually goes something like this. Dad, you know... Bobby does all four girls' hair before church every Sunday morning. And I got to say, it's, been, it's like offensive to me <laughs> most of the time. He's capable of, apparently, of all sorts. I mean, if you've seen the Gomez girls, beautiful. Their hair is always done amazing when they show up on Sunday. He's apparently capable of all kinds of trickery and styles and braids and, and everything. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And for my girls, it means, in some way that I don't even think they recognize, it means to them that Bobby really loves his daughters. That's what it means. 
You see, think about it. The sort of entering of the foreign world of his girl's various preferences and desires for their hair and developing the ability to care about that, perhaps even as much as they do. It says to my daughters that Bobby Gomez really loves his girls. And maybe just maybe that they would like me to love them a little more. <laughs> now, this is, this, is the, this is the heart of what Paul's getting at here when he's, when he's showing them what it looks like to be fruitful in evangelism. That, side, that sort of entrance into people's lives speaks powerfully of love. And it's only from near people's lives that they'll hear a message like the gospel that is so significantly life-changing with a real sense of power. You know, Paul describes the practical shape of living a life that impacts others for Christ here. And when he summarizes, it, he, it, when he summarizes all that he said, he says that he has become all things to all people. All things to all people. What, what does he mean? Well, we, we certainly, I think we can kind of get that he, he, he meets others where they're at so that he can point them to Jesus from where they are. You see, when, he's talk, thinks, when Paul thinks about fruitful evangelism, he thinks about meeting others where they're at so he can point them to Jesus from where they are, from inside their life. You know, in, in these verses, Paul describes his hard-earned missionary wisdom that he gained from years of genuine ministry as he pursued imitating Christ in their midst. And, and he points them to the gospel from inside their lives. All things to all people. Using the text, let's just describe for a second. Let's just kind of look at the text and use the text to describe... Paul's approach to evangelism before we talk about what it would look like for us to imitate it. Let's just try to, 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 to narrow in. You know, we see that he is free from his own cultural preferences. I became, you know, somebody says, I became, I became, I became. He uses his mature freedom to be able to set aside things that were probably his most near cultural preferences so that he can identify with somebody who is incredibly different than him. And so we see a strength to this. He's free from his own cultural preferences. We see that he, second, he functions inside the boundaries of Christ's moral instruction. Now before anybody sort of objects to Paul's all things to all people mode here, what Paul says is, I'm not saying we do just anything in order to try to gain a standing with people to point them to Christ. We have a responsibility. He says, I do all of this under the, what he describes as the law of Christ, bound by Christ, moral instruction. He's not going out of the bounds of doing what honors and glorifies God, of him making decisions that are faithful to the Lord. He functions inside the boundaries, he says, of Christ's moral instruction. In case you didn't see that, let me just point it out to you specifically. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, and he just backs up. He says, he's talking about the law of Moses here, and he wants to make a distinction. He says, I, I'm not using the, necessarily the Old Testament laws. He recognizes the significant freedom that has come for those who have found faith in Christ that frees them from the law in particular ways. And I don't have time to explain today, but in that freedom, he says, he, he's, he's still imitating the character of Christ. 
And he's bound by the moral character of God to do what, what imitates God. Right? So this isn't moral lawlessness. There's boundaries. It's constrained. It's focused. So he functions inside the boundaries of Christ's moral instruction. But then we see, once we kind of have that established, I think the next thing we could acknowledge is that he accepts what is foreign to him so that it can become familiar. He accepts what is foreign to him so that it can become familiar. He, you know, he, notice how many times he just starts describing settings where, where some of the, the, the way of life and the way of thinking and the practice and the ideas and the assumptions are, are, pretty, are pretty foreign to, uh, to where Paul began as a Pharisee in, in Jerusalem to where now he is spread throughout the Roman Empire in the middle of Corinth with people who are clearly not under the law and he becomes as one under the law. And that means he's drawing near to them in a way in which the relationships, he's growing to understand them enough so that he's near their life. And, and that's all about Paul taking the journey from where he was familiar to what's foreign for him and letting what is foreign there become familiar enough to him that he can speak in the language that people will hear. And when I say language, I don't just mean that he would speak in the actual technical language that they have. That's important. But I'm talking about the way that we express ideas, the way we understand our lives, the sort of assumptions that we have. He wants to be so so near enough to people that he understands those things, that he's heard, that he's listened, that he's cared, that he, he wants to dwell there in a way that now, he, when he speaks the gospel, he's speaking it inside of their life with their language. This is Paul's missionary style, free from his own cultural preferences, functioning inside the boundaries of Christ's moral instruction, accepting what is foreign so that it can become familiar so he can do that and then fourth he speaks the gospel then from a place of understanding that those he's trying to reach can really hear it where he hasn't put up unnecessary boundaries and stumbling blocks you know when you look at it clearly what we see is not paul's ministry strategy strategy but jesus ministry strategy we see an imitation of Jesus in his mission. Jesus frees himself from his cultural place of comfort. Philippians chapter 2 tells us he set aside the majesty of heaven for the hardship of humanity. We see that even with all of that freedom, he took on the form of a servant. It tells us in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus embodies the moral clarity of God's holiness. In the Gospels, we see someone of, of the highest moral character walking through, living a sinless life, but drawing near to those who don't yet even have, a, have the categories to understand what is so amazing about him. Luke 15, it, he, we see him accused of of having friendships, significant friendships with tax collectors and sinners who were the outside, the, the foreign in the midst of this culture in which Jesus was doing ministry, and, and they, they were drawing near to him, and he understood. In fact, as he tells the story of the prodigal son, he tells it in such a powerful way that speaks right into the inside of the heart of tax collectors and sinners. So powerful that 2,000 years, it's hard to imagine a story that better embodies the heart of God than the prodigal son. Jesus in Luke 15 is pictured as the one who goes into the foreign land of the prodigal son and speaks with authority and understanding to us right where he finds us. Ultimately see 
that it's Jesus who's willing to pay the cost of being there so that we are reconciled and brought back to the Father. Listen, if you've never understood the gospel, you hear us talking about the gospel mission that we need to embody and what we need to do, but you're here today and you would say, you know, I'm, I'm far from God. I, I, it's been a long time since I ever thought about connecting with him. I'm not even sure how to do it. Here's, here's what we would want you to hear. All we're talking about doing is, is imitating what we've already seen Jesus do for us and do for you. That right where you're at, from where you're at today, without you, without you having to clean yourself up to come to him, Jesus wants to meet you. He wants to meet you right there. He's not going to leave you there. He's going to call you to be willing to, to acknowledge and admit and recognize that the life you've led, what you've been doing, has not gotten what you thought it would give you. That it's actually broken. It's full of sin. It's rejecting what God has made you to be. But from right there, he's going to tell you that you can come with him. That you can leave from that place and he will reconcile you. He will carry you. He has paid the price so that you can be reconciled to the Father and know the abundance of the love from the God that created you even though you've been living apart from his purpose. And that he has paid the cost. He has shown up there. And if you come with him, by faith he will change you. He will let you see what your life really is about. And we just want to say to you... From that place, just turn and go with him today. Trust him. Believe what he has promised, that he has come to reconcile you to God. And so all this means for us, clearly, that gospel mission is just Christ-like imitation. Where we've drawn near enough to tell people in a familiar voice that they're deeply loved by God. And communicate how they can find all that they truly need and what they've really genuinely longed for in Christ. It's clear gospel preaching, spoken with conviction, from inside of people's world. That's the mission that we have to embrace. It's, it is clear gospel preaching. <laughs> clear announcement that we are sinners who God has sent Christ to reconcile to himself but it's spoken from inside of people's lives rather than outside. And that means if we're going to become fruitful in evangelism as, as individuals and fruitful in evangelism as a church, we're going to have to stop lobbying our message from a safe distance. We're going to have to learn to win people to Christ rather than to our culture. You know, some of us need to go on a journey where we get close enough to the Word of God where we begin to distinguish a little bit between what our cultural preferences have been and, and what Christ really calls us to. We need this for your own faith to flourish. You need to begin to get near to God's Word. Let God's Word speak into your life powerfully enough that it disentangles your assumptions about what it really means to be a Christian and walk with Him so that you can get nearer to Christ and disentangled from some of the things that are merely cultural in terms of preference that you've come, that have come from just a religious background that may have even held you back from pursuing the mission of God. And it's, a, it's an examination that God's word gives us clarity to do, and, and there are people that are a part of your life that can help you figure out what does that look like, but, but so often we never even stop and ask the question, Jesus, what are you clearly asking of me? What does your word say? 
You see, the one thing I've always loved about this church, and from the time that I, even when I returned from Iceland and, and came and saw what had developed over three or four years, the thing that I've always loved is that the first question we, we've asked is, is that really what the Bible calls us to do? And it's the only question that we've tried to ask over and over again for 16 years. Is this what the Bible calls us to do? Not, not what's my preference, not, you know, does this make sense and, and, and will people like it? The, the one question that matters is what is Christ's mission and how is he using his word right now to shape us into the kind of people that really want to go with him on it? And so we're going to have to build real relationships with people where we listen to where people are at so we can speak the gospel to where they are in a language that's familiar to their heart. Lastly, as a result of pursuing this sort of fruitfulness, I just want to point, you out, point out to you what Paul discovered. It's the pattern of personal participation. In verse 23, notice what he says. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and it's blessing. You know, it's interesting. Paul doesn't see a relationship with God as simply an individualized experience. He actually sees it as a community of people that God is calling and constructing into a temple that is filled with the Holy Spirit's power and the presence of God. You see, Paul, Paul is doing this because the mission isn't an individual mission. And walking with Jesus isn't an individual experience. And that, the, that, that pursuing the mission around the gospel and seeing God gather people all around it is part of participating in it. It's of really experiencing its fruit. Of experiencing its joy. Paul imagines a day when not only has he demonstrated the love of Christ, but in the vibrant love of a body of Christ, he's experiencing the love of Christ. He's, he's rejoicing in the love of Christ. He's reminded of the faithfulness of Christ. That Paul is, is he's hopeful that in the midst of giving himself to that kind of ministry, that, that God is also shaping him and preparing him. You see, the personal prize of the mission is that is that this all things to all people uh, mission has a shape that require the same shape that requires us to be effective in it presses us into the shape of being like Jesus together. Evangelistic participation fuels gospel appropriation. Like participating in the work of wanting to see other people come to Christ, it actually fuels us coming to see the beauty of the gospel in a deeper, more beautiful way from other angles that we maybe never have before. If you apply yourself to learning to share Jesus with others, drawing near to their lives, praying for, God, for Him to work, it's not just going to impact them, it's going to shape you as you imitate Christ. You're going to share in the rejection that Christ suffered. And learn that you belong to God. You're going to share in the self-denial that Christ took to himself. In becoming a servant. And experience real freedom. You're going to share in the weeping that Jesus wept with. And feel alive to his genuine love and compassion for people. You're going to share in the compassion that moved him as he saw 
the multitudes. You're going to share in the sacrificial love that Jesus displayed and be more touched more deeply in your own heart the genuineness of His love for you. You're going to share in the joy that Jesus knew that powered Him in moments when He was weak. And you cannot share in all that and remain unchanged. That's what Paul's saying. I, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that in doing so I might share in its fruits. You see, it's an invitation an invitation to be part of the mission and to be shaped by it to really know Jesus as we make him known. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that as we go into this time of remembering your body that was broken and your blood that was shed for us and we sing and respond, Lord, would you just create a space for us even in this moment where we genuinely respond to you, where you speak into our life, where you call us to a fresh work of consecration. And Lord, you make your mission specific in our life. Lord, I pray that you would put people on our hearts and communities on our hearts that you desire us to draw near. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with a sense of passion and single-mindedness as we think about the purpose that you've given to us, Lord, I pray, pray that Lord, in some manner by your Spirit's power, you would help us to, to become significantly fruitful in seeing people come to faith in Christ in our lives as individuals, as a church, that you would overwhelm us and surprise us as we surrender ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare